welcome to this month's iteration of Shortcloud's Threat Briefing. My name is Craig Moores. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by Q. Uh, we've got some interesting topics to talk about this afternoon. So over the, the last few weeks, we've been gathering together some of the information that's prevalent within the threat landscape at the moment. Uh, no surprise, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the emerging cyber threats from Russia's war on Ukraine. We're also going to look at uh, some of the areas of zero trust um, as kind of this default cyber posture that's come out from the NCSE in recent weeks. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the threat of phishing and ransomware um, within the threat landscape. Uh, again, some interesting um, facts and figures come out around that um, more recently. So let, let's start with probably the, the topic and, and the question that we're asked the most at the moment, Hugh. So around the emerging cyber threat from Russia's war on Ukraine, what, what's your take on this? What, what do you think is uh, kind of pragmatic advice for organizations at the moment? So a lot of the stuff is going to be the same as, as what we've talked about before. Even though we're dealing with really highly technical criminal groups and nation state threat actors, the threats that they're, they're exploiting, the, the activities they're conducting are pretty much the same as what we'd seen previously, at least from the perspective of, of how we look to mitigate that risk. So Phishing, especially spear phishing, is one of their you know most common um, methods of gaining initial access. And so, again, with that fairly typical control, we're just looking to make sure that we've got our user training and awareness up to scratch, where we're looking at maybe really highly technical exploitation of zero days. Well, we're looking to just make sure that our systems are patched and up to date. Again, as we've mentioned in a previous iteration, we've got to consider the supply chain as well. So while you might think you're not necessarily a target, if you're downstream of someone who is a target, then that's also a consideration. Uh, and just making sure that we're doing you know, supplier due diligence and uh, making sure that we're sort of operating in a, in a, as we're going to talk about later, sort of a zero trust approach will go a long way to making sure that we are you know, well secured against these emerging threats. Thanks. So continuing to do the basics in a, in a kind of robust and structured manner in that case. So I guess from looking around at uh, some of the things that are out in the landscape at the moment, then, Hugh, you know, what's the kind of targets? What, what are kind of the things that the nation state actors are, are potentially targeting? And, you know, are there any particular sectors or types of organizations that could be a, a potential target that our listeners might be interested in? Yes, yeah, so the NCSC have said that at the moment there's no direct threat to organisations in the UK as a result of the conflict, but I wouldn't take that to mean that you're not going to get caught up in it. So while we're seeing the, the nation states are fighting between themselves, as you'd expect, what we are also seeing, partially due to Russian um, legislation around the fact that they will only prosecute criminals and, and threat actors within Russia if they attack a Russian organization or entity themselves. As a result of that, we're seeing patriots, basically Russian patriots, supporters of, of the regime, taking up on themselves to target, typically in a disruptive manner rather than a sort of data security risk, just target organizations that are outspoken in support for Ukraine or, or condemnation of the Russian regime. So yeah, if your organization is quite rightly so, um, you know, putting out messages of, of support and solidarity with Ukraine, that would potentially cause you to come into the uh, into the sights of, of some of these criminal groups that just want to cause disruption. 
Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And um, so from a more generalized perspective, then how are they picking their targets? I've seen a lot of interesting things around uh, potentially how they're targeting or identifying targets. What are com- some of the common things you've seen and, and, and potentially um, maybe even some of the trivial things that you've seen that, that may help to protect organizations? Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that's going around at the moment is specifically, and again, referencing that that Russian legislation that we mentioned earlier about protecting, or if there's no Russian victim, there's no prosecutable crime. A lot of the malware at the moment is doing a check before it executes, specifically ransomware. And it's actually looking for whether Russian or former Soviet language packs are installed on the, on the machine prior to execution. So it's a pretty janky workaround, but actually something I'd advise at the moment if you haven't already, try and just install a, a Russian language pack onto your operating system because although it's going to have sort of no negative impact on you uh, unless you accidentally switch to a language you don't understand. It's a potential uh, sort of last step at lifesaver. That's interesting. Um, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about implementing controls in such a way, but I guess from a from a protection perspective, we, we hope that our kind of defense in depth model is um helping us uh, you know, to the degree where we don't have to rely on installing language packs. But I guess looking, you know, one of the interesting points you made was around supply chain. I think a lot of the organizations that I've been talking to, um, you know, are, are maybe not directly concerned about themselves, but potentially, as you rightly pointed out, services they provide into other organizations that may form kind of part of critical national infrastructure or, you know, maybe into areas like the DOD over in the US or financial institutes in in the UK. So one of the things you mentioned was around zero trust, which uh, I guess brings us on quite nicely to the second area that the NCFC has has made comment on in recent weeks around zero trust and and working towards that as a a default cyber posture. What what are your thoughts on that, Hugh? I know we've covered it before and and obviously, you know, might be quite a welcome point. Where where do organisations sit in terms of that guidance and what ultimately should they be considering? Yeah, so uh, I guess... Most people in the industry would advocate moving towards that zero trust implementation approach. But I think as the NCSC quite rightly made clear, it's important that you do it properly because it's not really just a simple switch you can flick on. Typically, you'll be using a you know a vendor supplied solution. But if you get it wrong and you know an asset is tagged wrong or an identity is incorrect, you know for it, for an individual software or a machine, Sometimes, you know, things will start going badly wrong and you, and you won't be able to work out why. But yeah, absolutely. We're looking to make sure that we are trying to operate on that, on that zero trust mindset. Don't just trust it because, you know, it originates from, from within the network. Even sort of what you might consider trivial internal networking, things like DNS, really important that we're uh, running DNS over TLS as well because an attacker could come along from within your network, just poison poison DNS entries. Every time you then try to go to your intranet page or whatever, you could you know, get forwarded on to, to an attacker control page or something like that. So I guess from a general perspective as well, zero trust is useful because attackers never really land in the environment where they probably want to be. So you know, lateral movement and things are obviously some of the first parts of the, the attack path that they might take. So how does kind of zero trust in, in the real world help to prevent those kinds of things without maybe re-engineering or re-architecting the entire environment? Yeah, so like you mentioned, and we just, just discussed, phishing is, is probably the most prevalent method of, of initial access we see. 
Um, and yeah, while spearfishing is effective in making sure that you land in you know somewhat the right environment, uh, it's it's really unlikely that you know that that person's reading their emails with their domain administrator account. Certainly, we'd expect them to not even have email access on on, on accounts of that privilege. If you don't have that zero trust approach, then maybe there's the potential for where that attacker lands to be able to communicate with some of these sort of crown jewel assets and high value resources. But by making sure that, okay, this user is trying to access this resource with this process at this time, okay, that's you know irregular behavior. They don't have authorization for that. We'll just kill that connection. Yeah, that's, that's really valuable. So I think building on that then from, uh, you know, organizations that are obviously targeting zero trust models in the future, the principle of least privilege is, is still something that, that is obviously very prevalent to protecting against these types of attacks and, and lateral movement and things, which I think considering our, our previous conversation around sort of how organizations might get caught up in the supply chain, you know, having that least privilege, you know, moving towards zero trust policy will really give them an advantage in stopping attackers from kind of propagating through the supply chain into their own environments. But it's important that they stay aware of that threat landscape, isn't it, as well? I think the thing that goes quite well with with this is around having a good awareness of the threat models and the, the various kind of attack vectors that attackers are going to focus on particular organizations and where we're maybe susceptible or exposed to uh, kind of public domain as well, because they're going to be some of the key target points, really, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And just with everything in security, really, there's no one-stop shop, right? Zero trust in isolation isn't going to do much for you, because if you don't have, as you mentioned, the other good principles in place, you know, your multi-factor authentication, least privilege, then as soon as an attacker can reach your your policy engine, you know, they're then able to say, oh, actually, our identity does have access to all of these resources and, and you lose you know, all, the, all the benefit of that. So making sure that the environment as a whole has you know, defense in depth, bunch of good controls and makes good use of zero trust is really what you need to ensure that overall security. Yeah, thanks, Hugh. So I guess some of the areas, again, we picked up there were, were phishing and ransomware. Um, I found it particularly interesting at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, some of the statistics around the increase in those as kind of primary attack vectors, you know, looking more recently, that doesn't seem to have changed. Um, you know, some of the statistics indicate that, you know, there are still real prevalent attacks, um, you know, across sort of ransomware that are being deployed via phishing. I mean, what are some of the statistics around those and, and, and what do you think they mean for organizations um, in, in kind of today? Yeah, so, so the NCSC have said that I think it was 91% of organizations experienced a successful phishing attack in the last year. So, you know, that's some credential capture or, or payload execution, which is quite significant in itself. And then 84% of those were ransomware based. So again, we're, we're still seeing a lot of ransomware. And of those 84%, I think 60% of victims actually reported that they ended up paying the ransom, which, you know, although the authorities will always say, never pay the ransom because you're, you are funding serious organized crime, Clearly, a lot of organizations are in the position where they think, you know, it's in our best interests to get this done with. Going back to the spear phishing again, I think a lot of the, the training and awareness pieces that were working sort of two or three years ago around don't click links, you know, you get a, an Excel sheet with some accounts invoices. I think people are pretty much on top of that. People are aware, I've got an email with an Excel attachment from a company I've never heard of. I'm not going to click that. 
spearfishing is slightly different, obviously, in, in the fact that it is highly targeted to the individual that's going to be receiving that email. Careful thought and consideration has gone into the context of the email, the hook that they're trying to pull you in with, and then you know what they're going to do with that beyond execution. So I think that some of the you know the automated Microsoft implementations of phishing testing and things like that are probably not quite sufficient for what we're seeing in the recent months with the highly targeted stuff. Definitely think that more training and awareness needs to go into that. Yeah, I was quite um, I was quite surprised by those figures, um, given the, the the kind of approach that organisations have taken over recent years to move to remote working and kind of decentralise some of their controls. You know, I think that's quite a significant number of successful attacks, which is interesting. I think what's more interesting is that 60% of those have actually paid a ransom, which I guess in, in our line of work, the key question is always, you know, do you pay the ransom or, or do you not pay the ransom? And as you rightly stated, I think the general guidance is always that you, you don't pay the ransom, quite obviously. But more of the organisations that I talk to now are actually looking at, at the cost benefit of actually you know being in the position of having to recover from a ransomware attack and, and having the confidence that they've actually fully removed that versus the potential cost and, and there's obviously risk associated with paying a ransom because you know we we've never met a, a particularly faithful thief right so is one of those that I guess the, the risk is a balance from a business perspective of, of achieving the overall outcome which is to continue operations so how would you say that compares to, uh, obviously, I referenced kind of pre, pre-pandemic, pre but I mean, if you look back a little further, I mean, those kind of statistics seem like they they probably should have been moving downwards rather than moving upwards. I mean, what, in your experience, Hugh, how has that changed over probably a slightly longer period of, of maybe sort of five years or so? So I think in some ways it's a good sign. The improvement in technical controls and policy and process elsewhere around organizations that have actually pushed the bar up of sort of general cyber maturity so high that it's no longer the easy way in to just scan an organization externally, find an exposed and vulnerable service and get in that way. Um, I think organizations, you know, we're pretty well keeping up on, on patching and maintenance now. And unfortunately, humans, the, the big fleshy meatbags we are, are still just as useless as we were five or 10 years ago. And so, yeah, unfortunately now we're just, we're the easiest way in instead of the technology. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we've spoken recently around the insider threat and around uh, kind of the the, the human layer that, that comes with um, sort of security architectures and things. So it is quite important to think about kind of where those key risks are. And, and I guess, you know, thinking to threat modeling and things as well, it's, it's not ignoring the people and process elements of information security, as well as kind of the technology aspects, which um, leads into, um, you know, some of you may have noticed that we changed the format for registration um, for our threat briefing. And we gave you the opportunity to ask some questions that we could pose. And, you know, there were a number that came in that were kind of relevant to what we're talking about. So I guess picking up the first one there, Hugh, around the, the size or potential turnover for a, a business that would be a typical target of cybercrime Ultimately, when does it become worth it for criminals? Um, you know, what, what's your view on that, given what we've just talked about and potentially some of the stats that we've talked about as well? I would say it's always going to be worth it for criminals. I think that the criminal you're facing up against is going to differ depending on the size of your organization. But the smaller your company, 
typically the less budget you're going to be putting into securing your environments. Therefore, the easier it is to get in. And so the, the more worthwhile it is for maybe a small individual or, or, or small crime group to target you. Obviously, then you get to your, your larger organizations, multinationals. Okay, maybe foreign nation states are going to be taking an interest in, in those organizations because, yes, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to get in successfully. But when they do, the payoff is also huge. So I think that's really the answer is that it's always an important consideration. You're never invulnerable. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I mean, different actors are targeting different outcomes. Some are looking for data exfiltration for monetizing you know, data and, and its value. Others are just looking to cause disruption or to you know, potentially use you as a, a way of sort of piggybacking into other environments, as, as we've seen in, in other attacks over recent years. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, cybercrime doesn't need necessarily a value to, to be a target. Sometimes it can be simplicity. Sometimes, you know, obviously, if the capability and motivation of the actors is high enough that ultimately, um, you know, you, you will be a target. Um, and I think, you know, regardless of uh, of kind of where you stand from a control perspective in terms of the effectiveness of your controls. Um, a lot of the organizations that I talk to now probably targeting more of a when we become a target, not if, which I think, you know, going back a number of years is probably a, a shift in, in their view of that. So I guess moving on then, one of the or a number of other questions we've had recently is around some of the common threats and threat vectors that are being used by Russian state actors. Um, past and present, and, and more so how organizations can prepare for that. I think you've covered off some of that, Hugh, but have you got any other specific recommendations that people can potentially think about in terms of identified threat vectors or things they can be doing you know, over above cyber hygiene to protect themselves? Yeah, so I, I guess important then in, in part of that question is to look at what are these organizations doing. So uh, one, of the, one of the biggest ones we've got is APT28 also known as Fancy Bear. So the FCO, uh, Foreign Office, have said that these guys are basically Russian government, so state-sponsored that they're, they're pretty much one and the same. And their sort of MO seems to be going for um, nation-state level espionage and also media interference is a big one they're looking at. So again, not typically something that would, would be looking to impact every organization, but I think it's very important to just be aware of these as well as the, the spear phishing we've mentioned, the exploitation of zero days. These APTs are also really hot on, as we said, like media interference and producing fake news and things like that. I just saw earlier today that one of these groups yesterday released a deep fake video of the Ukrainian president requesting everyone in Ukraine to you know, drop their arms and surrender. Uh, I think it's really important that we consider the you know, the impact of that and, and how reliant we are on social media and Twitter and video snippets like that for our information and the power that a, unfortunately in this case, it wasn't a very good deep fake, but you know, the technology definitely is there and that could be, you know, really, really far reaching in its impact. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, we rely so much on what's being reported through the media. Um, you know, there were recent articles around the, the value of risk management in cybersecurity, which, you know, when compared to some of the things you've just been talking about, I think we would take more assurance from the, the maybe the focus of the article. So um, it's really important that we kind of consider the authenticity of some of the information that we use for 
intelligence when we're looking at protecting ourselves and, and how that can be used really to make informed decisions about what we should be concerned about and how we should be protecting ourselves. So on a slightly different tangent, but related, you know, we had a specific question around the latest existing threat that's been identified and whether it's aligned to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. What was your view on that, Hugh? Yeah, so something we've been seeing in recent weeks is the uh, Ragnar Locker um, ransomware making a resurgence. So this was first spotted, I think, in, in early part of 2019. But in the last few weeks and months, especially in the US, it's been really uh, deployed quite heavily. So it typically is targeting Western critical national infrastructure environments, uh, yeah, primarily in the in the US. And it's quite clever in that it will go out and look for processes being run by managed service providers, and it will kill them first, and then it will look to deploy its ransomware, as well as just encrypting your data. The group also then threatened to uh, release it publicly. So you've got not only have you lost your data, you've also potentially had everything leaked. Again, this is one of the ones that if you've got one of those former Soviet region language packs installed that won't execute, that obviously, as we mentioned, is not a great control to rely on. But it's a, I, I think personally, it's really an interesting thing. And yeah, no current indications that that's aligned to any you know, geopolitical issues, but certainly it's really prevalent at the moment. And it's one we should all be keeping an eye out for. So I guess in, in summary then, I mean, you know, there are lots of discussion at the moment around cyber threats for, uh, you know, the, in relation to Russia's war in Ukraine. I think the, the general guidance from the NCSC is that, you know, there's no specific target or threat to UK organisations. But uh, I guess the message is to remain vigilant, you know, do the basics well and to keep abreast of, of what's changing in the threat landscape potentially considering some of the guidance around zero trust. Um, you know, we put a link in the chat for you to go and have a way and look at the, the zero trust guidance provided by the NCSC. So do go and have a have a read through that um, if it's of interest. Otherwise, you know, if it is a future requirement, consider the, the normal sort of least privilege, making sure that you've got a good understanding of, of what's going on within the environment. Uh, and that can help you to protect against the ever rising and prevalent phishing and ransomware threat is in, indeed, you know, not going away anytime soon. You know, have a look at NCSE's guidance around, um, you know, protecting yourself from ransomware. Hugh gave you some uh, sort of useful tips and, and things to consider as well. And we have just posted a link to our uh, our podcast channel. If there are particular topics there that are of interest to you, please do go and have a listen, you know, and let us know any feedback. Um, otherwise, thank you all for your time. Hopefully you found that useful. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you, Hugh, and good afternoon.